So this guy rides with you, and he's on an electric mountain bike? He doesn't ride. I don't know, really. I, I'm new in town. Um, right. I'm very new to the scene here. And there's a there's a racetrack called Longchamp, which is very famous. It's uh, where the fashion brand, you know, from Paris, Longchamp, comes from. Um, and there's a beautiful racetrack, like horse racing track, right. in the middle. And just on the other side, there's like a ring road. Um, which is nice and smooth and kind of one lane is completely sh- free from cars. It's shut. So wow. they come the old, o- opposite direction. So it's just a bike paradise. Nice. Uh, and you've got a really good group of fast riders who are there kind of Tuesdays, Thursdays, and over the weekend, every, every day you'll find fast groups, but there's a very organized Tuesday, Thursday, and then Saturday, Sunday morning pack. Right. Um, and there's this dude who I think he's a really nice guy. I think um, <laughs> I've been told by everyone he's a really nice guy that he rocks up on this electric mountain bike uh, and it's unrestricted. So normally, of course, they have a top speed, but he's got an unrestricted one. Um, you can delimit them. And and he just like absolutely canes us. And he sort of maybe knows I get the vibe. He He pushes for a couple of people who are very, very much with him and on his wheel. Right. Um, but basically, as anyone who rides will know, that as you go down the line, any surge, any ripple, yeah, and it just annihilates the group. So, and you know, we 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 do about forty five kilometers an hour for two two hours. Wow, so it's, ser- it's serious pace. Yeah. So as soon as soon as you've got someone taking it to forty seven, forty eight, forty nine with a little finger, yeah, one guy on the front can maybe hold it behind big fat knobbly mountain bike tires but as soon as you get one guy who remotely drifts a couple of meters you can't you know the it's completely a disproportionate effort to go from 45 to 48 into a headwind yeah on on your own like it just doesn't happen so it's it's like he should be out on the road moto pacing those guys not on your track yeah but also no one needs a moto pacer like you know what I mean? Like, yeah. We're not on a we're not on a velodrome. <laughs> we're like, what are you doing? Yeah, exactly. Up, he's brought the biggest gun you've ever seen to a knife fight, <laughs> <laughs> and it's so it's so unnecessary. Yeah. It's just like I don't get it. I know when I would uh, ride out here, and uh, I was sort of on the beginning of the uh, riders coming out to where we live, because I've had people say that uh, a guy who used to race for Canada where we live is kind of like uh, Flanders, I guess. I've never been there. I'm taking his word. We have kind of mild hills around us. Yeah. And uh, so I would, uh, you know, a couple of friends ended up getting bikes and riding with me, and I would try to teach them the etiquette. And we'd have one guy who, when we'd be in our pace line, as soon as he got to the front, he put the hammer down and started, it's like, Dude, you know what? We're either we're here to enjoy this and and not have to work, kill ourselves the whole time. But yeah. every once in a while, somebody wasn't feeling well, and they'd be dropped off the pack. And it's like, dude, we got to slow down to protect this guy and carry him along with him with us and help us uh, help yeah. him. So yeah. the 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 general understanding that um, you're significantly faster rolling in a bunch. Yeah, even if you all work ten percent less. Yeah. You know, it's that real, it's just pure ego. If you just sprint after someone without, 
if you are riding in a group of 40 riders and you don't have the kind of bandwidth, yeah. mental bandwidth to realize, hang on a second, what does everyone else need in this scenario? What are the guys at the back thinking? If we're pushing five, 600 watts, yeah. they're obviously going to be out the back. Um, and yeah, in a race, it's it's a race. It's fair game, but this is training. Right. What are you doing? Right. I, I, you uh, know what? I, I love riding in a pack because Sean and I ride a tandem. And we I used, know you guys did. And we, we used to ride with the Toronto Tandem Co-op. So it's like insane seeing 10, 12 tandems riding in a double pace line doing 50 kilometers an hour. Yeah. And you know what? The guys are, we're really trusted each other. We're just like six inches apart at the handlebars. And, uh, you know, the women are kind of sitting up, having a conversation. As the pace line goes <laughs> along, you just get a new conversation going, right? And we're just yeah. flying and people are like, watch these tandems go by. Yeah, I love, like, I love riding like it. Rolling Thunder. Yeah. The tandems. There's a guy, there are two guys here who come sometimes arrive on a tandem. And on the downhill, they just oh. blow past them. Isn't it crazy? But you know what? On the uphill, you guys smoke them. Yeah. It's just like, uh, yeah. as you would say, a lorry, right? Yeah, yeah. See you later. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Well, so I've, I've got everything all set, so we'll kind of get started. Hey, crew, welcome back to the Skippy Report. As you've heard, we've been talking about cycling a little more than your leisurely uh, pace with uh, guest Lewis Hatchwell, uh, formerly of Great Britain, but now located in Paris, France. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you, Lewis? <laughs> um, who am I? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I'm, I'm in transition I uh, I was and still am GB captain of a sport called Telemark, which I'm sure anyone listening to this will will know. Um, and but the last two years have been decimated by COVID, and essentially, um, my life's I've had to make some pretty big changes, very exciting changes to best to best position myself for what's coming next. Um, and so I'm now based in Paris. I'm a London boy, London, UK, born and bred, um, and who spent the last kind of six, seven years full-time racing the Telemark World Cup circuit. Um, on the side, balancing uni and then building a personal training business and a mentoring coaching business where I work uh, predominantly with young lads um, to, to coach an understanding of success um, using extreme sport. So that's always been my business back home. And I've used that and, you know, um, very generous support and sponsorship to fund the Telemark skiing racing. Um, but with Brexit and COVID, uh, the future was just very uncertain. And I haven't raced for the past two winters. I've missed two winters. Wow. Um, since, yeah, since Norway, the winter before last, we were sent home due to COVID and the season ended. Um, I haven't raced since. Um, I couldn't get out this year. It was unreasonable, uh, unfeasible, really. Um, you know, we we applied for elite athlete status um, from UK Sport, and we were given the go ahead five days before the World Champs. Right. 
you know um there was just and it's not that's not a criticism of uk sport um we are at the understandably to be honest at the very bottom of the list yeah we're uh, we the are, fringe we're, guys we're, we're, yeah we're non-olympic <clears throat> we are you know i mean of all the athletes they have to prioritize there are there are olympic qualifications right in places like kazakhstan this year i think it was um you know you've got to you've got to send all these athletes all over the world is telemark the top of the list or anywhere near it absolutely not right um but you know it it became very clear to me that if i was going to be in even in a position to continue pursuing it i had to remain in some part european right um so here we are in paris so i got a i got myself a talent visa based on international sport and now it's a new chapter in Paris, and my girlfriend is opening a restaurant here as well. Which yeah, is super that's exciting. so cool. Yeah. And that's Charlotte, right? Yeah, Charlotte Daly. She's on Rue uh, Rue Mondar. It's Charlie's crew. Okay. Um, and it's a it's a really cool health restaurant concept in uh, Paris, which is kind of famously a place where you ask for your eggs to not be cooked in butter and they come swimming in butter in Sauce. the classic French style. Saucinators. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that's like my daughter. She, you know, we, we cook stuff and it's like, out comes the HP sauce. <laughs> <laughs> no, you... It's just honestly, France is, it, it is way, it is, it is much, much better now, but it's way behind on, uh, vegetarianism, veganism, right. paleo, keto diets, catering for different dietary requirements. You know, you say you're vegetarian, they say, oh, so you can eat fish. Right. You know, there, re there really is a lack of education. Really? Understanding. Wow. And they're yes. at the forefront of culinary science. I know, but it's so classic that, you know, the classic uh, culinary scene here is, is, you know, it's next to none. It's second to none. It's unbelievable. Right. France is unbelievable for you know haute cuisine, but uh, yeah, on the on the on the level of where does a young person go to get a vegan burger? There are very very few places. It's that kind of, and it's punching it at that level, right. which they do really well. Right. So the style of restaurant that Charlotte's opening, really, uh, really like feel good, light hearted, um, kind of young colorful scene um and it's yeah fully catered to keto paleo gluten-free dairy-free whatever whatever your dietary requirements you'll go in there and there'll be a chef who understands you from catering. wow that's pretty cool yeah because uh cool. sean my wife she's uh gluten-free because she's inherited her mom's rheumatoid arthritis uh yeah and it's in her hands so she has to take care of, of her hands, and uh, it's amazing how little gluten consumption can affect the inflammation in your body. Yeah, it's it's mad. Um, Charlotte's mom, uh, Andy Andy Daly, she's a she's a nutritionist, so she founded. Um, she's basically known as a sugar doctor on social media. Oh, okay. Um, and so a lot of the recipes come from that very nutrition based. Um, kind of understanding beginnings yep and it, it's that it's that idea it's uh but it's just good food you don't have to i think what's nice about it is it's not shoving it down your throat right you know there's there's a lot of the health the health fad and it's shoved down your throat yeah and it's not that if you want to go in and have a sloppy burger you can go in and have a sloppy burger but you can also go in and get a 
gluten-free keto meal or yep. whatever your requirement is and it's just nicely done and um you know a yep. soft approach we uh we often serve alternative stuff at our house and not tell people what it is they have no idea <laughs> yeah, nobody has any idea until they see packaging and then they're like judge they're so judgmental yeah you know what like say at, at thanksgiving and christmas you know at one point we'd have the traditional stuffing and then sean was like gluten-free and i have a daughter who's pretty much essentially without going through all the testing uh, that her doctor said she went to see a specialist yeah, and the specialist said, uh, "You have done everything I would tell you to do, so just consider yourself celiac." Yeah. And anyway, so you know, at Christmases we'd have the uh, regular stuffing, and then we'd have the gluten-free stuffing. And then I think it was last year, Sean says, "Well, what should I do?" I said, "You know what? Nobody knows make what they're eating. Just make exactly. it all gluten-free." Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I remember uh, going to school in Toronto. And living at my sister's place because I'm, you know, a hundred kilometers east of Toronto, and I'd stay there through the week. And my brother-in-law said he would never eat vegetarian food, but you know what? He, he ate our vegetarian lasagna. He didn't know. <laughs> Where's the meat? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. That's like, uh, do you guys have Wendy's over there? Um, no, but I know Wendy's. Oh yeah, that the old lady is like, "Where's the beef?" Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's exactly that. My my whole I've kind of accidentally forced my entire family to change how they eat. Right. And that came about from a pure, you know, athlete performance standpoint where yes. it became painfully obvious to me when I was at uni playing rugby that right. the beer and the pizza. Um, yeah, we were fit and we were training, but the beer and the pizza and the culture of drinking was absolutely ruining me. Right. Um, sort of internally, digestively. And it started, you know, that was 18, um, 18 years old. This is now 10, 10 years later. It's taken me 10 years to get to a point of being diagnosed with IBS and all these things along the way, seeing nutritionists and fundamentally none of it mattering. Right. It's, it's a real trial and error process of working out what is right for you because as anyone with IBS, IDD, Crohn's, things like that will know. Yeah. You can be, your diagnosis means next to nothing. And it's so much about the nutrient timing. It's so much about when and what you eat. Yes. Um, and so, yes, and I'm like, you know, I'm completely onion free, garlic free, dairy okay. free, gluten free. Right. Um, most people who I would cook for would have no idea. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's like there's so many ways of getting flavor and you know yes. goodness into food. Yeah, and, and um, you know what? The the importance is the access to fresh food. I've had some conversations with people about we, we do have food insecurity problems here in Canada, but when I watch American news and talk to people, uh, they call them food deserts, like neighborhoods and in inner cities where there is no grocery store, no access. To fruit and vegetables, you know, and then we live out here in the country. We grow our own food, but I also have some friends who have a um, an organic farm. And man, oh man, uh, our girls were young when we bought into what they call a CSA, community supported agriculture. It's a small organic farm, and people buy shares, and every week they get um, fresh vegetables. 
either delivered or you go pick them up. And, uh, you know, our girls may have been 9 or 10 or 11, and they were like, wow, this f- these carrots taste even better than our carrots, you know? it's uh, Yeah, it, it's it's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And there's huge misconceptions. You know, frozen food generally has a much higher nutritional value right. than fresh food because with each mile you put food through, with each impact, it loses its nutritional quality. Exactly. We we just um, bought a side of beef from a former student of mine, and uh, I'd like to know his, I'd like to know his net worth. I'd like to know his net worth because when he was a kid, when I taught him, he was 12 years old. He was buying cattle, raising them sending off to get slaughtered and then he'd take his money that he would need to buy the next herd the next fall so he didn't have to worry about them through the winter and then he'd invest the rest of the money anyway so yeah we bought a side of beef but we shared it between my two daughters and um my son-in-law says to me it's really bloody when it thaws and i was like well you have to think about all the steps that have been left out between farm and table. You know, it's not been such a long time since it was butchered uh, and that sort of stuff, you know. And then there was an inked seal on it, and he says, what's the blue stuff on here? I said, "Uh, it's either the, the stamp that tells you when the beef was hung to age, or it's the food inspector stamp, you know? So he's getting closer to where his food comes from. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting conversation. Taste. And telling him that, you know, the meat is more robust in flavor than regular store-bought meat. And this is all grass-fed, growing on an organic farm, that sort of stuff. So, And here in Canada, we're not allowed, you know, you, you'll see uh, corporations you know, uh, antibiotic-free or growth hormone-free. We've never, ever been allowed to do that uh, to our livestock here in Canada. So it's not about producing, you know, these monsters and on these big industrial farms. Yet we do have industrial farms. And I was out visiting a friend who has an industrial farm, but the animals actually prefer where they are it's everything on his farm is free choice. When they get milked, robots milk them. Uh, when they get fed, they all have uh, chips, either on a collar or in an ear and that sort of stuff. And uh, they have access to go outside, but they have this, oh, I don't know how big this barn is. And they have these, they're called big ass fans. And <laughs> they're huge. They're huge. They might be like 30 feet in diameter. And uh, the cows actually prefer staying inside where the air is moving. They, they, they roll up the sides of the barn, open all the doors. And even in the wintertime, they keep it cool. It's, I think he said, about 5 degrees Celsius. And that's optimal for milk production in, in cows. So it, was, it was just crazy. And, you know, he, they milk 150 head. They're on 1,600 acres. And... Um, and he's he's a genetics farmer. That's where he makes all his money. He's got the second best herd of Holstein cows in Canada, production-wise and that sort of stuff. So he makes his money selling embryos around the world for his cows. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, a, it's kind of interesting. It's a mad way to make your business. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it is. 
So uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Um, Where'd you go to school, university? What I went to. Uh, so I, I was, I was, re- I started life in the Royal Free Hospital in Han- like the base of Hampstead for anyone who knows um, London. I went to, we, we lived in West Hampstead, which okay. is a really nice, uh, it's a really nice area in North London. Um, dad, my dad's a lawyer and my mum's an interior designer. Um, and we were sent, we, I don't know, I was, we were very lucky. I would say we, I got a brother who's 60 months older than me, Harry. Um, and I was very lucky. I was very privileged. I went to a really good school my entire life from the age of like two, two, three years old, all the way up to 18. I went to a school called Highgate school. Um, I got an amazing education. Um, and and then I went to, I took a year, I took a year out before going to university um, in which I did all sorts. I did, I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. So I did, um, I did my basic training in the Israeli army. I did um, kind of, I did a full winter, basically working in saint foy tarentaise in the French Alps, where I worked in a ski shop and I started telemarking. So that's where that all began. Um, that was going to be one of my questions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I didn't, I didn't have any form of competitive skiing until I was about eighteen years old. And by twenty-one, I was captain of the GB team and racing full-time on the World Cup. Wow! So my life was very, very different um, up until about eighteen, nineteen. It was all football, rugby, British sports. Um, and grew up sailing. My dad was a big sailor, so we spent summers on the boat. Um, and then, as uh, much later into our lives, we were, you know, super fortunate. And my parents bought a chalet in Saint Foy, and so we grew up skiing in Valois, which was the flip side of the Col de Galibier in okay, the mountains, yeah. just at the base. And um, and then we moved kind of a couple of valleys over. Um, which is a very quite a long way away, but not really in <laughs> A to B, you know. That's like I have. I don't know if you remember if if you ever did meet Norm Miller on the U.S. Telemark team. I and, think so, maybe. Yeah, he would. So. He's older. He would have been like in the Masters and that sort of stuff. Anyways, uh, he and I only live thirty miles apart, but it takes us five hours to get yeah, to each other. Exactly. <laughs> What's in the middle? Yeah. <laughs> it's quicker with your skins. Yeah. Um, no, so that so we moved to Saint Foy, um, kind of in search of bigger, bigger skiing. Right. And of course, that Saint Foy Tarentaise is an amazing little hub of powder. It's basically like one of the best powder resorts in the world, let alone Europe. It's a real sort of uh, gem. In amongst just the end of the road, you've got Tina Val d'Isère. Opposite you, you've got Les Arcs and La Plaine, which are joined by the the cable car. And at the base of the valley, you've got Bourg Saint-Maurice. And it's kind of... And then, on the, sorry, just next to you, you've got um, La Rosia, and you ski over into Italy. Okay. So you're in an amazing place. You I think are, my sister has been there. It's an awesome place to ski. <clears throat> right. Um, and it's... it's uh, There are some... Re- there's a really high-level skiers, and there's also a bit of a telemark culture there. Cool. And telemark's a bit like that. You've got places and people who basically spread it and share the love and and you get a localized hub of knowledge and 
um, yeah, yeah, of Telemark, really. So um, a very important man in the story is a man called John Langridge, who I call John Sondra Langridge, after the one and only. Um, but he was a beautiful, beautiful skier, uh, Telemarker. And he was not, not a young man when we met him, sort of not old either, but he was sort of upper 50s, I think, 60s, and just kicked it with anyone. Right. Um, just a just a, a wicked skier and beautifully smooth. Um, and always always with a knee down, you know? Yep. And it's, it's, you know, unusual to meet fast skiers who are British and who are slightly older, who are also lovely. He was, he was a teacher his entire life. You know, he was just one of those men you... You just wanted him to be a grandpa. Right. Um, and uh, so he, I basically tried it because of him. Um, I dug out some old Telemark skis in the basement of the shop I was working in, ski set, which was uh, Sondra Ame's ski set in uh, saint Poir. I worked for her. She's a family friend. Um, I dug out, they were K2 Telemarks, cable bindings, Rotafella Cobra bindings, and a pair of uh crispy the old old duck bill crispy blue and red boots oh yes yeah uh, yeah like really old um and for about half an hour i hated it and thought it was the worst thing i've ever done as i felt on my face continuously so, so um, w were you actually trying telemark stances and all that uh, sort of straight, stuff straight away oh straight yeah away. yeah i was completely <laughs> self-taught i was completely self-taught this is a guy and and uh, people don't really believe me when I say this, it, it, when I ski with them now. But I was honestly a very average skier. I was a, I was not an American or a Canadian or a Frenchman who'd grown up in the mountains skiing. We were Londoners. I was right. a proper London boy. We spent two, three weeks a year max in the mountains skiing with my family. Um, and if there wasn't snow, you didn't ski. You know, it was like right. You know, we were, we were, my, my dad's a beautiful classical skier. Mum's a really nice skier. My brother went to Whistler and that was where the ceiling was blown off. Because right. he was uh, sponsored by Planks and just became an absolutely sensational off-piste kind of free ride skier. Um, but my brother is the best athlete I've ever met. Right. You know, he is one of those natural thoroughbred racers. Right. Um, whether it's running, football, rugby, he just excelled. And whatever he sees, he can copy and do. He can apply to his body. Um, so he kind of blew the parameters of what was possible on skis open. And uh, and it still made no sense to me on Alpine. I still didn't. I could not. Telemark, essentially, telemarking was the first thing that I could look at. And I saw, hang on a second, everybody's doing this wrong. You know, I met telemarkers who've been telemarking 20 years and their turns were still stiff as hell. Right. And they still had no fluidity. I couldn't understand why they were moving that way. And it took me, you know, in in seven days, I felt I made what people, you know, what it took some people a year to learn. It just really clicked with me. It was the first thing in my life that I was like, ah, this, this I get. Right. And I think that was why I went into it so, so, so hard, really. I was like, within a month, I'd emailed GB. I just Googled, watched everything, read everything I could. John gave me um, Telemark Tips, that, that great book. Yes. Um, and 
and that was that was the start of it. I was I was you know I had an insatiable appetite for it, um, and it it kind of set it set the it set the direction, and from then on it became very much all about performance. Um, and I was very fortunate in the sense that we are completely basically unfunded, unsupported in Britain, and you people will hear them be like, "How is that a good thing?" Um, but in my position, you've got to remember, I was a half coach, I was a trainer, and I was learning the industry and, um, yeah, wetting my beak, so to speak, and, um, and, and just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. And on the other side, I was trying to become one of the best in the world in the sport. Um, that was very small, which allowed you to get very high up in it very early right. before you really deserve to be there, right? It's very unusual that you can go straight into kind of world cup in your second season you know how how many sports in the right. world do you have access to that level yeah um so so that was it so that it was just straight in at the deep end and then uh loads of injuries and loads of gnarliness along the way um and all of which made me a much much better coach right and out of all of that grew a business of mine back home after the season of mentoring um, young young lads, basically young boys above the age of about uh, ten, basically I I always felt you need they needed double figures to have the kind of cognitive development required to understand their own sense of self and position right. in, in in society and life. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, I, and I kind of found myself being sent kids who were not necessarily troubled but going through difficult transitions in their lives and I felt I was well placed in between parent and child to apply and all I did was coach sport right. but with a real with a real mindfulness on how are they developing how are they thinking how are they um, responding in sport and out of sport because you know that's what I had learned I had learned that you know, and, and that was two huge injuries, learning to walk again twice, having a nerve removed, exploding my foot and, you know, being told it's never going to be the same. There's all that, which isn't, the details aren't important. What was important was just the work that I was forced to do on myself. Right. Um, you know, and I was left in a position where we had built up the GB team. We had done a huge amount. We'd learned how to run a squad. We'd brought in a central coach. Um, we'd, we'd basically turned GB Telemark, um, myself along with my teammate, Jasmine Taylor and the committee who were there. We had, when I arrived, there was no team, there was no kit. You had to buy your own. There was no coach. There was no bus. We had nothing. And within five years, we had a team bus. We had a fully sponsored outfit. We had dare to be as a headline clothes sponsor. Uh, we had Seb Monsar as central team coach who I still think is the best coach in the world for getting British people to top 20 in the world. Right. Past, past that, I think it requires very specialized performance coaching, which Telemark still lacks. Right. Um, but yeah, that was what we did. And, and all of that fed into an amazing, basically an amazing apprenticeship for, for life and for using sport to coach an understanding of suffering and um, you know, deliberate, yeah, deliberate suffering and, and learning, and um, 
that's it. That's what it's been ever since. Um, I, I like that's, that. That's what I do. How you talk about suffering. Because a friend of mine who I interviewed, Adam Sourwin, I think I mentioned this in a couple of episodes. He went to, uh, he's from Buffalo, not far from me, but he likes to go ski the East Coast, not far <laughs> from where the World Cup that's races suffering. were. <laughs> so he'd go to Mount Washington and on the backside is Tuckerman Ravine, Gulf of Slides, all that sort of stuff. And, yeah. You know, he skis here in the east like I do, mountain or hills, resorts that are like maybe 800 feet max vert. And, uh, you know, it's a couple hours into the trailhead and then up onto the snowfield. And he was saying there's uh, no correlation to um, his ability to suffer and his fitness level <laughs> he just suffers <laughs> but he thinks he's fit you know <laughs> he suffers well yeah yeah exactly that was like me you know people would say why do you ride all those insane miles and it's like because it feels good when you finish yeah yeah you get you know thoroughly exhausted and i have a great buddy because he got into cycling when he moved next door to me and uh, he's a race car driver or was a race car driver. I would propose these adventures to him. It's like, hey, you want to ride around Lake Ontario? Sure. <laughs> you know, and uh, up until our first day, which was 140, 50K with a loaded bike, he had only yeah. ridden maybe 80 kilometers, you know, with no nothing on the bike. It's a big, it's I, a big difference. Yeah. And then um, another day I came up with the idea. Let's ride to Kingston and back. It's 321 kilometers, right? So left at 5 o'clock in the morning, got home at 7 o'clock at night. And uh, Jeff was, uh, he thought he'd be good if he got to Kingston and then got a ride home. But you know what? He stuck <laughs> with it and rode the entire way. It was awesome. Yeah, it's amazing. What, uh, well, I think the, especially when you've got someone there with you. Yeah. Um you know they they all had you giving them the the apprenticeship it's uh it's 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 much it's much easier having that security isn't it yeah you're not you're not suffering alone exactly it was like this morning i planned to go for a bike ride and i got up it was still cold it was super windy and it's like oh i gotta dig out all my winter gear it's like <laughs> i'll go for a walk instead i'm usually i'm i'm that guy that like say for example sean she's a swimmer and I swim. I uh, had to take it part of my as part of my university courses in phys ed. But uh, I'm that training buddy. If you need, I told her. I said I will not wake you up before seven o'clock in your retirement in the morning. However, we have to get to the pool because it closes at eight thirty, and we have to be able to do our lap. So, like, I'm that guy. It's like if you want to do something. Hey, you just say, Hey Keith, you want to do this? It's like, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm the motivator. Okay. Let's go. <laughs> let's go. Come on. Let's go <laughs> in the car engine running. Yeah. So Honking, yeah. anyway, so, uh, what do you think you're transitioning to? You have any idea? Um, yeah, I do. I, I have found a very natural, I I've, I've taken the last month or so to really iron things out. Um, the, the, the skiing is still there and it, it always will be there. And I think that's almost the beauty of a seasonal sport. That's the beauty and the curse of it is you have so much work 
um, there are these sports like skiing, like gymnastics, where they're they're kind of mythical, mystical things that nobody sees until the snow arrives. Right. Nobody sees the graft. Um, And yeah, I mean, you're kind of always working towards it in the shadows. Um, And I, I... I'm in the I'm the fittest, I'm in the best shape I've ever been. I can go back and ski if if it's right and if it works. Um I'm still ca- you know, I'm still GB captain, I'm still in, in the position I was in, if not a better one, as a smarter, um, sort of calmer, happier athlete. Right. Um you don't you don't lose the skill, you just have to get the legs under you again. Um cycling has played a huge part in my life the last uh two years. And I've gone from um, pretty average, you know, using it like a lot of athletes use it to spin the legs pre-season, build the base fitness, um, taking it into full-on online racing. And now here there's a proper uh, community of teams and, and people down at the circuit pushing, you know, pushing pushing proper performance. Um, and that has very much kept me sane. I'm not a very competitive person, which is, I think a lot of people find that hard to believe, but there are two types of athletes I find. There are, the, there are those who are immensely competitive and just hate losing and want to beat everyone. Right. And then there are those who just want to beat themselves and they just want to improve. Um, and both can be immensely powerful. I fall into the latter. I'm not competitive with anyone. But it, I find it devastating if I don't live up to my my potential. Right. Um, you know, and I'm a harsh, harsh self self critic, self judge. Um, and the cycling, I I just fell into uh, just like the telemarking all those years ago. Uh, the cycling has just just replaced it. Right. Um, it allowed me to just hammer myself, and I've built my way up on the on the online side on Zwift Swift Racing. I don't know if you you probably have heard of it. Oh yeah. Um, for anyone that, who hasn't heard of Zwift Racing, it's basically plug your bike into a smart trainer or a dumb trainer with some sensors strapped onto it, and you turn your bike into a computer that syncs up to a screen. Right. And you can race against all kinds of um, sort of landscapes and people online. And there's full uh e-racing e you know full competitive salaried e-racing teams online really uh, take it as salaried yeah, online yeah, yeah, racing yeah it's uci e-championships now there's a world championships there's a rainbow jersey for online cycling it's huge that's it's absolutely an, huge i have it's a like um, i have a friend who's gotten into cycling since he retired he was uh he's a retired uh provincial police officer and he I, i've yeah. never actually gone and seen the whole setup so he took me in his basement and you know he, he'll ride he did a six hour ride it's like dude my nether regions fall asleep after an hour on a trainer like how, i prefer riding rollers but it's like yeah mm. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of a trainer and the other thing is i like being outdoors so I, i'm one of those dummies who used to you know i commuted by bicycle for almost 30 years even in the winter and people yeah, are like, what? I know. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, but yeah, that's, that's insane. E- yeah, works. yeah, it's, it's amazing. So, you know, it just, it provided me, um, the kind of the mountains were taken away from me, so right. to speak. Yeah. And it provided me the landscape to just keep flogging myself. Right. Um, 
and just learning. So I did throughout the last year or so, I did a V Everesting, which is, yes. if you know what that is, it's the yep. height, you ride the height of Everest in a single ride. So, you know, I did Alp Duez uh, 8.6 times back to back. Wow. Took, took me, it was 12 hours riding. Non-stop, that is nine, intense. So does your meters. trainer adjust the tension and yeah. all that's really... Yeah. I have a, I have a, the, it only counts if you have your trainer on a hundred percent. So that is identical gradient to what you'd be experiencing on the road. Oh man. So it is, a, it is an identical replication of the Abduez road. So it's 15% is 15%. Wow. And, and there is no, there's no getting around it. So you put a big cassette on your bike, you yeah. kit up the bike like you would on the normal road. Um, yeah. And you essentially, you essentially you, you get you get into it doing you know? Alpe eight times. You're definitely flogging yourself, man. Yeah, <laughs> you'd no, be exactly. like spent at the end of that. Yeah, that you know, so, yeah, it's just um, it's a learning process. I'd never done anything like that. I'd run London Marathon. That was it. I ran London Marathon. Um, you, you in my final year of university, I had finals. I had world champion junior world championships i had the london marathon and i had a catastrophic uh, burnout oh i i bet <laughs> and uh, yeah i just i was young dumb and full of uh, enthusiasm and equal part naivety um and ignorance and i had a full-on depressive episode and burnout in my final year uni and, right you know learn learn a lot from that it was so situational i was so fortunate I, I've always been the kind to identify what's going on in me very quickly. Yeah. Took myself straight to my GP. Was like, I think something's up. I have no motivation. I don't care. Um, and that was it. I had a burnout and learned a lot from it. Built myself back up. Took some time out. Took a couple of months. Got everything delayed and did my graduated with the master's students. You know, six months later. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, lots of things in your life that you forget about until you do something like a podcast. Yeah, well, you know what? It's interesting because, you know what? <laughs> we, uh, I've had the same episode. I was, uh, you know, I always pay attention to my body. And uh, yeah. there was one year I, I was, uh, my birthday's in September. So this was the following uh, February, January, maybe. Maybe it was January. I wasn't feeling really well. My back was itchy all the time, so I'd be on the door frame at school, you know, like the big old bear rubbing on a tree. Yeah. And uh, I ended up with shingles, and then as I was recovering from shingles, I got mono, and oh my gosh, having wow. both of those at the same time, I was like, what's going on? I was off work with the shingles, and I was coming home from on the train from a friend's place, and about every 20 minutes, I would get like pre-race jitters, for yeah. no reason at all. I was like, okay, there's something up. Anyway, so yeah, all of those things uh, really affected me. I ended up with some mild depression, mi plus or minus anxiety, I think the, the doctor said. They put me on happy pills for a year. And uh, when I went back to see him after the first week of taking them, and I was like, yo, dude, I don't know if you put me on the right stuff because I feel worse. <laughs> and he goes... <laughs> No, we don't tell you you're going to feel worse. It's I know it's working when it makes you feel worse. Anyway, so I just took my pills for a year, and I, w I missed three months of work recovering from the mono. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. My my day was 
uh, get up at 11 o'clock in the morning, have a shower, make Sean's lunch, because she just works like less than a kilometer from the house, um, have lunch with her, go back to bed, get up at 4 p.m., just in time for the girls to come home, get supper going, make sure their homework was all done. A- and at 4 o'clock, I was, I was ready to start my day. And then 8 o'clock at night, I was back in bed until 11 o'clock the next morning. It was... It was killer, but you know what? Crazy. I it just from paying attention to your body, and you know that might be Sean being a nurse and my background in phys ed, right? With all the health sciences. Yeah, yeah. So kind of kindred spirits there, paying attention to your attention to your body, and and so many people yeah, don't do is. that. No, no, it's it is it's amazing. I mean, you know, it, it is it's remarkable. I don't know if people don't do it or if the habits people pick up throughout life mean they uh, blindside themselves to it. Right. Um, it, the, the result is the same, you know, but yeah. I, I work with so many clients who repeat, um, you know, as a, as a, the, you know, my, my bread and butter is physical training. Right. Um, but there's no such thing as physical training without a mental aspect. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, there's no, there's no sport coaching of any form which you can do well without a serious understanding of the mind and the entire relationship between spirit, mind, body. Yeah. Um, you know, and yeah, any, anyone who says there is and you can just coach the body is probably not doing a very good job. No. All we're trying to do is get the most out of your athlete um, at any level, um, whether it's a 50-year-old just trying to keep their body ticking over after a desk job or a young developing GB level uh, skier. Right. It, it, it makes no difference. It's that same teach people how to be balanced, happy, healthy, and you'll get bloody good athletes as a result. Um, hey, you get healthy, happier people in general. You know, you take a look yeah, at a sure. lot of, for sure. a lot of the people who are athletes and where they are, you know, later in life, uh, you know, my, involvement in sports and all that sort of stuff has kind of helped me you know near the end of my career my career really did change I went from being a shop and phys ed teacher to teaching freaking English it's like I went and got a phys ed degree so I didn't have to teach English in the last 10 years of my career (laughs) I had to teach English and and a few other things and it's like you know what I just put my head down bury myself learn what I need to do get the job done and, and, and then get out of there, you know? Yeah. There's your self-fulfilling prophecy for you. (laughs) I've had a few, I've had a few of those in my life that I can recall. Yeah. Yeah. However, you know what? I actually had a lot of fun. And in my last year, I had some students learn from me and pull off on me what I told them to do in the future. I told them, I said, don't get rid of your work. You're going to need it in the future. This is what I told my girls. You know, got to work smart, right? So as you have assignments that are coming up in the future, you know, might be, I taught grade eight. So this would have been grade 11, say, or grade 10. Pull out those assignments. They're going to be a base for something. You have already done a fair amount of research. Now you just have to add to it to make it at a more sophisticated level because you're three or four years older. So near the end of the school year, I'm reading a couple of assignments, and I was like, these sound familiar. So as I was handing the assignments back, I said to this one boy and this one girl, I said, 
you guys remember when I said don't throw your workout? You can recycle it, add to it, make it more sophisticated. Did you guys do that to me? And they both smiled and they shook their head. I said, that is so good. You learned. That was so perfect. For me, that was, you know, yeah, a really good a good moment in my teaching career. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it brings back to it brings back to what you asked me before. What are you what are you transitioning to? And it's, you know, what where where where's this going? And to me there's you know, that's why I subject myself to an Everesting. That's why I do the marathoning. That's why I choose to kind of deliberately suffer well continuously yeah. for, for two reasons. The first being I identified very early that there are places you can go in yourself and outside in nature and so on and so forth, but fundamentally in yourself um, where you have clarity and where there is a, a much better sense of perspective. Yeah. Um, pain, pain is an opener. Yeah. Um, you know, it, because it, there is no noise as soon as you are out on the bike for, and you cannot ride for an hour and find the same depth of thought as if you ride for six. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Yeah. You know, the deeper you go into the well, the more of the light, unimportant stuff just floats past you. That's right. Um, and I'm not really the kind to sit and imagine the waves rushing over me and think away the distraction. I am more the kind to dig in, go deep, find my medium, yeah. which has been sport and, uh, and, you know, get rid of the noise my way. Um, and I think that's, that's what it's about. And that's what the cycling has allowed me to do for, for years. I was trying to find a way how I could create on a mass scale coaching and inspire people and impact people through sport and through skiing. And this year has taught me that I may still have stuff to learn from skiing, but I personally think cycling and a journey in um, the, the next chapter being focused on the bike is going to allow me to impact a much greater number of people. Right. Um, and that's kind of where my energy's my energy's going. That's where I'm putting my energy. Um, because skiing's too seasonal. It's too difficult to um, the entry is very high. Yes. There's a high financial entry. Yeah. There are there are clear sociocultural barriers that cycling doesn't have. That loads of other sport. You know, the best example is running. Yeah. Anyone can be given a pair of shoes and run. Yes. But it's brutal yeah. on the body running, and it's a difficult thing to give people love of because I don't know. There's something about a bike. I think it's the greatest invention ever. I think it's a pure kind of. Uh, I agree. I read a book where they said it was the most noble invention ever. Yeah, I, I just love it. I think it's just, it is just man, woman, machine, nature. And you just, you just have access through a, and there's something great about a mechanical. First of all, cycling is also quite sexy, like a, a nice bike, nice yeah. kit. It's kind of a sexy sport. Yeah. Um, and there's, that's on one end of it. And on the other end, it's just as simple as jump on a bike and go for a spin. And it makes you feel better oh, you, every time. Do you think, when I was at teacher's college, uh, one of my profs, he uh, wrote a book. He was a outdoor education or educator. And uh, he wrote a book called A Journey in Six, Eight Time. And it was about paddling. And he realized that his strokes were actually in six, eight time, like in music. And I mm. talked to my prof about this. 
and it, about cycling. And you know what? My my cadence is kind of like that. And I, I wonder if it helps peel away the layers and let you to get deeper because there's that, as I say, a metronomic cadence, you know, to your 100%. legs pumping, it's right? Rhythm. Yeah. It's rhythm. It's flow. It's anything. You know, it's it's what, you know, one man's violin is another man's bicycle. Right. Another man's skis, for yeah. sure. Yeah. You know, the, the, the sound of skins as you climb uphill. Yeah. You know, the the sound of a gear um it, uh, for sure there's an element of that like we are you know we are we are much more in tune with life and the world if we allow ourselves to be then we often think right and um, you being and, much more in tune man when, when you tour by bicycle you can't be any yeah. more in tune no than exactly that. yeah exactly um that's fantastic and and to me yeah it there's no there's no level that is too low and there's no ceiling that is too high as far as that that's the way I see it now there is you know I am I am buzzing I'm super kind of motivated to create grassroots um youth cycling team uh racing teams yeah. basically on a, on a real um for less privileged um inner city uh kids I I've just it's something that I've been thinking about and I'm absolutely going to push to try and create um, there are some great initiatives in London, kind of put down the knife, pick up the bike. Right. Um, but like I've noticed in most of my kind of fields of training, if you get people just to do something for the sake of doing it, it's purposeless. It's aimless. Oh, you mean like getting a vaccine and, for COVID? Huh. Just because I live <laughs> north of some country that there seems to be a lot of hesitancy. <laughs> That they have to offer a million dollar lottery in the state of Ohio to uh, get a vaccine. It's like you don't think having your life surviving. Uh, are you vaccinated? I am. I am. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was lucky uh, because Sean is working and that's what she's doing is COVID stuff. And uh, she says, I have a friend who owns a pharmacy and she says, hey, I think Scott's got uh, AstraZeneca. So I got on and. Nothing was coming up for a couple of days. She says, okay, it's because ha it hasn't arrived and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I was able to get my vaccine in the first uh, few days that it was available. And for me, you know, science is a big part of my background. And there are risks with everything, but there's far less risks with taking a vaccine. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I won't be vaccinated until I'm told. Um, I had COVID. I was I, I got it quite badly um, in London, and to me, after I'd had it, <laughs> there wasn't much point in getting a vaccine, right? Unless unless it really opened the borders of international travel, right? But that, that's about as firmly as as my as my stance is on it. Um, as soon as it's required for global travel, I'll be I'll be in the queue, right? I just think there's a lot of people who need it more than me. Well, and, yeah, uh, that's yeah, so. You know, I didn't jump the queue or anything. It was just offered, and I yeah. went and got it. No, and um, yeah, no. If you, if you agree with it and you want it done, it's you know more power to the fact that you live somewhere where you've actually got vaccines available, right? And uh, can you know can protect yourself as best as possible. Yeah, it's a it's a privileged thing. But you know, in in we've been. I'm in France now and it's a very it's a very interesting mindset here. Is it? Because there are a lot there are a lot less um 
well, they're essentially a lot less for it, I would say, in general. You know, put it put it simply, they've had vaccines and people aren't showing up. Right. And uh, they're not interested. I think the French are quite, in, in, a, in a funny way, they're quite sort of naturopathic, homeopathic. They're, right. not, they're not very trusting of, of science. They're quite traditional. Um, and it's, yeah, there is, there is definitely resistance to it here. Right. I, I think it's so, I just think it's so interesting. I don't think there's a right and a wrong. I just think it's, uh, there's real cultural intricacies. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, like I'm, I'm reading this book called think again, it's pretty interesting. And, and listening to, um, you know, people for and against it. And, uh, I was just listening to Dr. Fauci talk this morning yeah i think it was this morning you know what and and he must have read this book or that this is the way that he's uh, been educated that he doesn't judge anybody he just educates and you know what he's fine with the choice with which you make just you realize yeah. that you know there could be really bad circumstances a little later on and uh sure people may not be able to be able to help you no, I, I think my, my issue with the vaccine has nothing to do with the vaccine, but actually the the way certain governments, the British government included in that, to be honest, have essentially media blackout anyone speaking against the vaccine. Really? Um, and and I don't think that's that. I mean, I know it's not isolated to Britain. Yeah. But yeah, you've, you've got platforms like Facebook, which are pulling down advice from nutritionists because it goes against the, the essentially the government guidelines to right. go and get vaccinated. Right. You know, they don't want to see people saying, you know, you can, you can treat this yourself with, um, with vitamin C and quercetin and things like that. There are other, other means, but I don't know the, the I, I do understand it as well because it's, it's kind of a time of war. Yeah. You know? And yeah. It's kind of when when there is a epidemic like that, a pandemic, you you kind of need one voice. Yeah. And even if that voice is wrong, sometimes it serves everyone better sometimes to follow the wrong advice altogether than right. it does to serve, you know, the right advice, but in with a fractured society. Yeah. You know what? We've been very fortunate uh, here in Canada because every level of government has been on the same page. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and uh, you know what? Even you know our conservatives and our liberals. Uh, I got to ask you because I like to learn stuff. So you got you guys have your uh, Labour Party and your Conservative Party. Do you guys have like liberals in Britain? Yeah, there's or liberal, whatever they're Democrats, called. Lib Dems. You've got Lib okay. Dems, All right. Okay. Democrats. You've yeah. got Greens. Yeah. You've okay. Got, um, uh, yeah, you've I got just. UK. Who are the really terrible <laughs> <laughs> UK Independence Party? Who are very, very happy with Brexit and uh, don't really like brown people and everything in between. <laughs> it's, uh... That's that's like some of our provinces that have threatened to leave Canada. I was like, yeah. fine, you know, like one province. That's why we came to Ontario, <laughs> or as I say, we moved to Upper Canada. You know, because uh, my dad wasn't yeah. fluently French and wanted to open his own business. And uh, I, I'm a bad man. It's like, okay, you want to leave? Leave. But uh, you're not getting anything from us. You got to give us the army that you have that give it back to us, you know. And then in the, in the West, we have a, a province of like a bunch of Western cowboys, you know. it's 
Uh, however, they they seem to be asking for help. And I was like, yeah, we, don't you remember back in the 70s when there was the uh, fuel shortage? And it's like, yeah, let the East freeze. It's like, come on. Yeah, I'm sure, a man. I'm a bad man. I have a really good long memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see. That's why you. That's why you do this. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? I do it because I I love to learn. Because you know what? Like I'll I'll watch the news and and that sort of stuff. And uh, I see Parliament in in Great Britain, and I was like, Do they have liberals there? Like, what are they called there? You know? So absolutely. But we we honestly we're so middle. Right. Um, like. Even the right and the left are both, you know, they're both pretty, pretty bloody conservative nowadays. Right. Like it, it is, there, there's not, there's not that much. But it's a, it's a, you know, London, London and Britain is a, um, it's a very advanced, um, part of the global kind of, you know, um, sphere, isn't it? So it's, uh, I think both, I think, the 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 further you go into development the less extreme things become on the right and and the left it seems right at least in in a, in a metropolitan sense right you kind of you know well i i think a lot has changed i think it's generally softer across the board even on the far edges of it right now your healthcare says it's probably all similar to ours that um you don't have to go out and purchase healthcare and it's all no, part of the state. Don't. Yeah, and there are some things that you know, like like anything, um, it elements of it have been privatized, and there's a lot of a lot of things I don't understand and right. won't even begin to talk about. Um, but in general, having used the NHS my whole life for anything short of big operations and things through sport, and I was fortunate enough to always have private medical insurance as well. Yeah. Um, if you have things like, in general, from my understanding, if you have serious things like cancer and serious diseases and and um, illnesses, I think the NHS is pretty spectacular. And I think our, I think that is not necessarily down to the NHS. I think this is the misconception. I think our doctors and nurses are unbelievable. I think we are immensely privileged to have a national health service in Britain that is as strong as it is. And that's like any team, basically down to the individuals. And even with shoddy management, I think uh, you can go a very long way if you've got really well qualified and well well positioned people underneath it. Right. And you um, know what? That, that really shows up during this situation, health situation. Oh, yeah. that, like. Yeah, you know what? You want exactly. to talk about those people who have mental fortitude? It's those doctors and nurses that are still going to work every single day, you know, yeah. and, and... And have uh, had COVID four times because oh. they're so exposed to it. And, yeah. you know, my, uh, one of my good mates growing up with his brother's frontline, um, you know, he had been sent home three times for positive, oh. being positive with COVID three times. <laughs> it's like, it's madness. It's madness. Yeah. Um that's that's why the NHS is unbelievable and there's there's a lot of a lot of nonsense and a lot of media and a lot of you the the usual kind of negative. Right. Um I can't stand modern modern media oh, if I'm completely yeah. honest with you. Yeah. It's just a disgrace. And, and in Britain we're such a 
<laughs> we're such a moany country sometimes. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why we're so pessimistic and negative. Sometimes I watch like the Australian news and the Canadian news, and I just think yes, you're so positive. Well, you know, it, um, I, th- I think that it might have something to do with your climate, maybe. Yeah, but yeah. that that's stereotyping moved, British climate. I've moved uh, south. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I I know. However, like you know, when I used to teach science and and I teach about uh, water systems and that sort of stuff, when I talk about the Gulf Stream and and like where London is in Canada in Ontario, that's a little tiny town called Timmins, which is a logging mining place. Uh, that yeah. gets insane amount of snow. It'll be minus 30 degrees Celsius most of the time through the winter. And it's at the same latitude as London. You know? Yeah, crazy. <laughs> and you can't go anywhere without winter tires up there, you, you know? So it's, yeah, I, I maybe it's the uh, seasonal effective disorder. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it is. All I can tell you is... The weather in Paris is significantly better than London. Nice. Nice. Which is great. Yeah. Well, you know what? I want to thank you for uh, spending an hour and a bit with me. Uh, I was thinking that maybe we'd talk a little more telemark, but I liked how this conversation went. It was really cool. You know what? It was. It, what's really cool is the last podcast I had was with uh, Corey Snyder of the U.S., and, oh, and we were talking about sports science and biomechanics. So here we are today. We're talking about health and nutrition and, you know, me- mental wellness, as I like to call it. Yeah. And how uh, sports can uh, have a definite impact on how you're feeling. And if there are anybody, any listeners out there who have been shut in your apartments and, you know, need to get out and exercise and eat better food and uh, you'll feel somewhat better. Absolutely. Or, yeah. or you can go the other way and you can buy yourself a, a turbo trainer yeah. and you can plug into the, the dark world of Zwift. Yeah. You can ride the height of Everest in a single ride that, <laughs> crying. To yourself. That, wait till I tell my it. friend, I'm going to challenge him to do that. <laughs> cause, yeah. cause he had it's done, a, I think, I think he had done a three-hour ride, and I dropped something off at his house, and it was kind of crappy out. And I said, so what are your plans this afternoon? Oh, I might get back on my trainer. I was like, are you crazy? No, it's addictive, Tim. It's, 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 the, same, it's the same highs. It's the same endorphins. It's the same, it's the same magic as outdoors, um, which becomes harder and harder to justify in a normal world, right? But when you've got something like COVID going on, yeah. Um, and if you can retain perspective, the like, the miracle that is the opportunity to to continue training at that level, thanks to modern technology, that that's a, that should be enough to get you on the bike and keeping yourself happy and healthy. And you know what, when, doing doing yeah. things like we're doing on Zoom, like absolutely. the technology that we have to do this, you know, it's uh, absolutely yeah. just profiting. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll let you go. Uh, thanks for doing this, Lewis. It was a pleasure, and I look forward oh, to. You, oh, man. you know what? Where can people find you on social media? Um, so at Louis Hatchwell, so it's at Louis Lewis. I get called all things from all different people, but um, L O U I S Hatchwells, as it sounds, Hatchwell. Um, I've got a website as well where um, I have some blogs and some information. 
um, about myself and about, you know, other things, more general things. Uh, Instagram's kind of my big platform, um, but there is lots more to come. It's, uh, and we'll look, we'll speak, we'll speak. And should there be uh, a platform being built by me in the, in the near future, I'll make sure that people can access it. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, for sure. And, and Charlotte's? Uh, Charlotte is um, Charlie's. So it's you know C H A R L I um, S. So Charlie's crew, um, and they are yeah Instagram Charlie's Daily Life and right. Charlie's crew. That's the restaurant, and you'll see us and our little. Uh, you'll laugh at this, but we've got a we've <laughs> just got a new uh, little tiny white chihuahua. I call um, those um, uh, accessories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's the one that's the one but this dog is so funny uh he has so much character his name is squish milo daily <laughs> he is on instagram as well as the parisian chi and i'll leave you with a, an entertaining thought he is called squish because in france as you do this how french is this um each year the pedigree dogs have to be named a certain letter of the alphabet all of the dogs um and so this year was an s and because i didn't re- we didn't really want a dog called s so we thought we'd mess with them a bit and we chose a second letter that the french cannot pronounce and what's the one letter the french can't pronounce is a q exactly yeah yeah so <laughs> we named the dog squish <laughs> right uh, just just because for those magical moments when we take him to the vet and the vet has to call out squeeze or however he'd like <laughs> he or she would like to pronounce it uh, so yeah, so we we gave our dog a stupid name just to mess with the vet. Well, that that was like my cousin. He had a yellow lab, and yeah. his name was Shaw, S H A W. But he lived in Quebec, and all the francophone yeah. would say, "Why would you call your dog Cat?" <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, because Shaw is cat, right in French. Uh, yeah so yeah. yeah it was too funny it depends on the pronunciation for sure for sure <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah clearly all right well you take it easy and uh you, have a great rest of your day thank you you too thanks take care thank you so much lewis for sitting down and talking with me during this episode of the skippy report and thank you for you listeners for choosing to listen anyways i hope you learned a few things Uh, about uh, health, nutrition, physical activity. And don't forget to check us out on Spotify, YouTube. Uh, Where else am I? Here on Podbean. And uh, check back in uh, about 10 days for uh, another episode of the Skippy Report.